Welcome to The Balance. My name is Catlin Tucker, and this podcast is presented by StudySync. Today, my guest is Ivy Yule Eldridge. Ivy began her career in education in a first grade classroom. She has been a teacher on assignment in curriculum and instruction. She's an administrator. She earned her doctorate in education policy from Pepperdine. And she has also taken on the additional role as supervisor of teacher education and lecturer for UC Riverside's Graduate School of Education. She is a dear friend of mine. And in addition to all of these roles that she has played in education, she is also a wife and a mother and somehow managing to juggle it all. So welcome to The Balance, Ivy. Thank you, Catlin, for inviting me. Love being here. Yeah. So I want to get started with you just sharing a little bit about your journey in education, because I know you began years ago as a first grade teacher. I did. And I'm just curious, like, what do you remember from those early years teaching, like being in a first grade classroom? Are there any like lessons that you learned or things that were surprising in that first couple of years teaching? You know, it's so funny because I I actually share this story with my own students sometimes, and they sit there agog with their <laughs> with their jaws dropped. Um, and essentially, I share this story because I want them to know that this is a true journey of self and of service. And so, um, I specifically remember walking in um, because I began as a sub. There wasn't a permanent position available, but there was oh, this wow. very kind woman who went out on medical leave and she was, you know, a, a lifer, like I like to call them. <laughs> and um, unfortunately, she went out on, on sick leave. Mm-hmm. She had cancer and I oh, never wow. knew this person. But anyhow, I walked into her classroom and it was years upon years of teaching. And she was amazing just by me uh, hearing stories of her from her colleagues, which were now my colleagues, and just right. everything that she had left in this classroom. And um, I remember giving, being given a package of pencils and the <laughs> principal told me, good luck. And that was oh. about it. <laughs> and you're off. Good luck. <laughs> that was literally it. It was two packages of pencils and I was told good luck. And um, wow. I think I had graduated from college, undergraduate school, not master's here, um, maybe no more than four weeks prior. So exactly. So I always say, God bless my (laughs) children who are in my first year class. And the the good thing was that I had an amazing master teacher who was also a lifer. And she taught me all those things that are not in a textbook Mm -hmm. about how to uh, love your students, um, how to care for them, how to recognize that they are someone else's babies And uh, therefore, you have to truly consider that, you know, they belong to someone else and that someone is gifting you with time with their kids for so many hours a day. And what are you going to do with that gift? And so that really formed my uh, perspectives on education and honestly, just in children, you know, and who they were as individuals and who they were as learners. And so I've kept that with me throughout my entire educational journey remembering that these babies are someone else's babies. And uh, that has always helped me gain perspective. So that was kind of the beginning of, of my journey and 
it has changed so much (laughs) since that day, since that day. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I've coached in so many first and second grade and even kindergarten classrooms. And it is coming from a secondary background. It is such a different little world in there. And you're so right. They're they are these little gifts that you're given for this amount of time. And and yet they need so much from the teacher at that age. And uh-huh. gosh, they just love their teachers at that age. It's the sweetest thing to be in those rooms and just see how curious and excited and mm-hmm. loving they are. And then, mm-hmm. and then to see the ones that you can just tell are coming to school with like a lot in their kind of metaphorical backpacks. And yes. They just yes. need a, like a hug and they need a teacher. I worry about those kids right now, right? The ones who aren't mm-hmm. getting the hug at school mm-hmm. that are at home, you know, learning with the screens. There's just no way to replicate those kinds of interactions. You know, there isn't. There there really isn't. And I really, my hats are off to all mm-hmm. the teachers out there that are working their backsides off, really trying to connect with families, continue connecting with students, because there is truly something about the human element, mm-hmm. um, that, that personability, that being in the same space as someone that really, you know, connecting with others just, uh, and I don't mean to get too metaphysical, but really not just physically, but spiritually, there is Mm -hmm. a part of that that is tied to making connections and learning. And I think that if we completely act like that um, is not a part of learning, we would be fooling ourselves. Um, All of us, you know, all of us can remember that one individual that Mm -hmm. they just totally connected with, you know, or that one individual that they saw maybe a little bit of themselves in that person or a little bit of who they wanted to be. And that's not discounting um, the beauty of technology and how it's advancing education, but that personal element um, of teaching and learning really is something that we can't discount. We can't. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Even in my interact, like during my own research work, just Mm -hmm. the importance of those relationships with students to teacher engagement is incredible, the impact that they have. Mm -hmm. And for those teachers in this moment who are feeling very disconnected from students, I just worry about long-term how that's going to impact their engagement, which teacher engagement, it totally directly impacts student engagements over time. It's just kind of a scary formula, you know? And we don't quite know uh, what this is all going to amount to. We don't know. know what it's going to look like. And um, I was talking to my mom the other day, who's also an educator. And uh, she says, well, Ivy, how is all of this going to pan out? And I'm like, mom, we- <laughs> I would like an answer, yes. please. <laughs> <laughs> my magic eight ball is on the fritz and, and I don't quite know yet, but um, I don't even know if we can uh, conceive uh, what teaching and learning and just the whole world of education is going to look like after this. And and I'm not speaking doomsday necessarily. I'm just thinking that this is going to be a major pivot in how we provide learning opportunities for students. Yeah. And I yeah. hope some reimagining because the, yes. the areas where I feel like we're tripping and falling, you know, all of us in this kind of transition online and to these hybrid schedules and what I've been calling kind of the concurrent classroom is Mm -hmm. just this desire to replicate what we've always done. And I'm like, wow, in this moment, we have this opportunity to say, we can't do it that way. Mm -hmm. How do we want to do it? You know, how do we want to reimagine this experience for learners? And I worry that we're maybe not embracing that opportunity. And that's what is really, um, 
interesting right now as a supervisor of education for UC Riverside, we are having to uh, really redesign the instruction that we provide for our pre-service teachers. And uh, it's in, it's out of necessity. Um, I want to say an instant necessity, uh, <laughs> but it's also something that had you know been in the works for some time. Um, and we were slowly kind of moving into that arena because honestly, um, you never knew what um, level of technology background the master teacher was going to have once that right. student teacher got placed. And so there is a, a delicate dance between placing a student teacher with a master teacher and, and really hoping that you are finding, you know, some parallels between the two and that they work well together. But I say all that to say um, we work, you know, pushing our students headlong into how do you design lessons that are blended or completely mm -hmm. online. Um, and now we're having to do that because many of our student teachers are being placed with master teachers. And as of today, October the 8th, you know, <laughs> uh, all schools have not reopened. So, no, our, I, yeah. It's so different. It's so funny here in California, almost everybody's entirely online still, mm -hmm. but then you go and I'm hearing about other places where kids are on hybrid schedules or they're mm -hmm. going to school every single day. And it's just crazy how different the experiences are depending on where you happen to be in the United States. Yes. So when we talk about impact, it's not just, uh, you know, impacting our, our, our youth, it's also impacting our future teachers and the type of opportunities that they are having um, really while they're in their apprenticeship, you know, and preparing oh, yeah. to be in service. So it's a, when I say it's a pivot, it's a pivot <laughs> for the entire <laughs> world of education. And so I can't see us completely going back to what once was. Yeah. So we're in the middle of all of this unprecedented change in education mm -hmm. and teachers who are already in the field, who a lot of them, like you're saying, may serve as master teachers. They're being asked to teach some in person on these hybrid schedules, some entirely online, some doing this concurrent classroom dance of like, I've got some online, I got some in class and I'm somehow going to meet everybody's needs. <laughs> and so I, I wonder, do you think how do you think that credential schools, teacher preparation programs, how do they need to adjust in order to prepare teachers who might be leaving this spring and going into who knows what the situation might be like in the fall um, so that they feel prepared? You know, this is actually something that um, the California Council on Teacher Education has been working on and looking at for some time. And I became involved with them when I first started working with the University of California at Riverside um, and really working with this consortium of teachers across the state of, of California or teacher educators across the state of California to take a look at what do we need to prepare our, you know, pre-service teachers mm -hmm. on. And I want to say that two of the subjects that are, are, are really tantamount right now are um, access and equity mm -hmm. and, you know, social justice. And then the other one is technology. And I would say they were running uh, not necessarily neck and neck in level of priority <laughs> and importance, but, you know, kind of uh, which one is it? it's like two horses in a race type of deal. You know, they're both out there in the front and that the need is extraordinarily great. Mm -hmm. um, and so I say all that to say 
that we have pieces that are written into our, you know, our credential program standards that are within each of the teacher education programs, as well as the TPEs, you know, teacher performance expectations. And so... We follow those pieces and there are elements of social justice and, you know, access and equity and technology in them. But I think it still comes down to how do you design curriculum for adult learners? Mm -hmm. And that was actually a part of of my curriculum. How do you teach teachers or in this case would be teachers? So first we would really need to begin redesigning what our curriculum looks like and our practices in instruction in the same way that we have teachers begin to look at their practices in educating youth. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we need to, number one, involve more elements of adult learning. When we look at the tenets of adult learning, we need to be involving that into the instruction that we build at college level mm-hmm. and then rethinking what do teachers need in the classroom. And I've got to be honest, some of our teacher education programs are not as clear on um, what teacher what a teacher needs right now who's in the classroom. Right. Um, unfortunately, and this is no dig against my colleagues, there are some, um, whether it's by choice or design or whatever the case is, they're out of touch with what teachers of today need. Mm-hmm. And so we need opportunities to stay connected with teachers who are in the field, with administrators who are in the field, and and not just in an effort to, you know, have a good placement for a student teacher, but really collect data on what is it that an incoming teacher needs to know, instead of us decide making those decisions solely at the collegiate level. Mm-hmm. We have to have some real insight into what's going in in those classrooms and. Um, it's kind of crazy for me to be an administrator <laughs> and also, you know, an instructor in our teacher education program. However, I do know that it has given me information above and beyond on what teachers are going through right now, today. Exactly. You know? You're like in it. You're seeing everything yes. they're struggling with. So that's yes. how you stay so relevant and, mm-hmm. you know, connected to their needs. And I wonder if You know, if you're a professor or you're working in a teacher credential program or preparation program, but you have had so much distance from that experience in the classroom, like even if you've been out of the classroom for only a handful of years, now everything's Mm -hmm. so different. It is really hard to know what skills they need, what's going to work with kids, what technology can be leveraged for specific instructional strategies. All of that changes. It, it, you know, it truly does. And um, I think when you and I met, both of us were coaches at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I was in curriculum instruction mm-hmm. at the district office. And so I was still sometime out of the classroom, you know. Mm-hmm. And so now being back on school site, I'm not in the classroom. But what I can do is talk to my teachers. Right. Um, I can ask them, hey, what are you experiencing? What are you thinking right now? And those are some of the things that I take back, you know, when I'm on campus at UCR. And I share that with my with my students. You know, this is what I just spoke to a teacher about today. This is how they dealt with a situation like this. And, and some of my teachers, whether they're on my campus or 
or other campuses across my um, K-12 school district, sometimes I'll see maybe a planning document or something amazing that they've made. I say, hey, would you mind if I get a copy of that? Because, you know, I have some students that would love to see it. So there is a humongous benefit in me still having my feet on the ground in in K-12. And for me, it also gives me a much larger perspective um, on what administrators are dealing with, with what campuses are dealing with, you know. And so it, it makes me think a little bit differently when I'm on um, college campus and I'm planning for students to go do X, Y, and Z. I already know, you know what, that's not going to work. Right. No. <laughs> No, we can't do that. No, no teacher wants to do that. No principal wants to talk to you about that. (laughs) So I'm curious, when you talk to your teachers who are at your, in your school district, what are you hearing from them? Are there similar sentiments or things that you're hearing them wrestle with or that they're facing that seems really particularly poignant for the moment that we're in? You know, during this pandemic, and I'll speak to this, and now I think we're maybe, what, on month seven, month six, six or I seven? I mean, it feels like month 42. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'll do you one even better. My school is a year-round school. Oh, so, my gosh. Yes. Oh so as God. an administrator, you know, um, our teachers have, you know, time off uh, ever so many weeks. But as an administrator, we don't. So, you know, we've been full throttle since the pandemic began. You know, our school year actually began in July, I think July 8th this past year. So, um, you know, our teachers, they were experiencing a certain amount of stress. I think it's that natural stress that all of us as, as teachers have experienced as the first year teacher. Oh yeah. Uh, we were all first year. Everybody <laughs> is a first year teacher right now, which is, you know, first year teachers are probably like they were already going to feel on their yes. on their heels a little bit, but uh-huh. for those teachers who have been doing it like the lifers, right? You've been doing mm-hmm. it 25, 30, yes. 35 years, like this must be the most overwhelming situation imaginable, you know, to be thrust into these yes. unfamiliar spaces mm-hmm. and have to figure out how do I connect with kids? how to support mm-hmm. them in my in their learning you know it's it's tough it has been tough and the teachers have been great they have been resilient like i said um my hat is off you know to all the teachers that are really really trying their hardest in addition to managing, you know, the the effects of COVID in their own lives and in their own families. So they're doing both, you know, um, and it's, it's like many of our essential workers who are, who are out there doing both. Yeah. Um, but it, what they're doing is also redesigning on the fly. You yep. know, there, there isn't, there, there wasn't a manual for this. Nope. <laughs> there wasn't a manual for this. There, there wasn't, you know, how do you deal with this? How do you flip the classroom, you know? Yep. And, and for some, how do you just make a, a doggone interactive document? We're not even talking about getting, you know, fancy dancy. No. Oh, no. About, I was, you know? Uh, no, I was working. I was coaching a, a, a school, a group of teachers, and I had them all in grade level breakout rooms, and they were supposed to be collaborating on a differentiated, like, 
choice board. Mm-hmm. And they were asking as I popped into, like I popped into the third grade room and, you know, one of the women, they, they were talking about how they like the idea. And then one of the women asked me like, hey, but what about the workflow of this? Like, I love the idea of the mm-hmm. choice board, but now they're all working remotely. And how do I see their work? And you know me, I was like, oh, well, you create a Google slide deck uh-huh. and <laughs> you, you're going to put the choice board in the second slide deck. And then you can create a slide deck for each of the activities. And this one woman looked at me or like, she looked at me, you know, we're on the Zoom call and she was like, I need you to slow down. She goes, I have never made a Google slide deck in my life. And I said, I will make you a video. I can walk you through this. Like, But it was just so funny because she was, she was kind of laughing at me. Like, okay, I love the idea of the choice board. What you're saying about a slide deck seems like it would make sense if I knew how to make one of those. But it was just like, like if I knew what a slide yeah, deck was. Exactly. She's like, I've been teaching for 30 years. I've never done any of this stuff. And I uh-huh. thought, oh my gosh, it must yeah. be, you know, there's so much to learn and there, and there's also so much pressure and not enough time to engage in the messy work of learning, which is tough. And, and all teachers out there who might be listening right now, we know that, um, we learn every year by the formative assessments that Mm -hmm. we take, you know, that qualitative feedback that we get back from our students, that quantitative feedback that we get back, you know, when we see their assessments say, okay, well, that wasn't a good learning (laughs) task. And so we tweak and we add and we take away, you know, every single year. We do that every single year. And that's how we grow. We learn a little bit more and we say, well, let's try it this way. Well, maybe I want to add this text now. Well, this Mm -hmm. is what I want to do with this text. And here's this, you know, media text and here's this podcast, just all these different things. And we, we learn and grow, you know, based upon a foundation that we set year one, depending on what that grade is. And you may yep. have multiple year ones, but good teaching practices will transcend from one grade level to the next. Mm-hmm. But to completely, you know, kind of pull the rug from, from underneath you, yep. like, ta-da, <laughs> now do it, you know, it, um, it, it truly throws you for a loop. And, and if that were the only thing that we were dealing with, then right. maybe there'd be a little bit less stress, but that's not the only thing that no. we're dealing with, you know? No. Well, and you think about all these things happening in the background of these mm-hmm. kids' life. Yeah, the pandemic mm-hmm. is one thing, but all of the, you know, the, the protests and just this growing yes. awareness of, you know, racial inequality. I have Mm -hmm. to think that so many of our kids, like the school is not the thing that they're thinking about. It's not the thing that that's like occupying their, their minds and, and their hearts, quite frankly. Oh, it's truly not. It's truly, truly not. And, um, and even more so, you know, our students that have had, um, health issues in the home or just health issues with themselves. The last thing that they are thinking about mm-hmm. is your slide deck. <laughs> you know, the, the best choice board is not going to catch them in that moment. Yeah, no, it's not. No. It's not. And I, I've had so many really cute, you know, but unfortunate when you think about it, situations where, you know, we, we have some kids that there's stuff going on in the background. And again, I know other teachers can identify with this as well. And um, I had one class that I, I was visiting and uh, I, mom was doing something in the background and was loud and everything. <laughs> and the, the poor student was like, 
just 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 try and ignore her. Just just try and ignore <laughs> her. You know, I've been reading all different types of uh, articles about uh, engagement and why some students don't want to turn on their their cameras mm-hmm. and different things like that. Like there isn't when you think about like an experiment, we don't have. Uh, a, a control group. No. We don't have a control group. Nope. Everyone's home is different. Yep. Yep. Everyone's and, home is different. And there's such a, you know, I, I feel so torn about this because I've had so many teachers bring this up. Like we have to require, you know, have them having their cameras on. I'm like, yeah, having cameras on is so important for that relationship building. And also for us collecting formative assessment data, watching them and their responses mm-hmm. and, and, you know, seeing their faces. But at the same time, there is such a degree of vulnerability in allowing that window into their personal world that mm-hmm. I think sometimes we don't necessarily think about as much. We don't, Yeah, we don't. And when they're in our classrooms, we can create that learning environment. Right. You know, and we can monitor that learning environment and, and try our, our hardest to make it, you know, the most optimal for student learning and, and for their social well-being. But we have no power over what is going on in their home. Nor should we, honestly. No, no, absolutely. Um, But when when we think about just within the context of learning, that is something that we can't control. And And anytime we can't control something, it's uh tough for us because I think as teachers, we are so used to having so much control over our environment. Of course, of course. And that is part of one of the greatest stressors in, in this event that, you know, we there is a true loss of control. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't control the environment. Um, we we really can't, you know. For for when you think about being a teacher of, of, of the littles that we call them, mm-hmm. you know, we, we teach the hand washing and, and the uh-huh. stand in line and all those little things that we do to create the environment, and all of that is gone. Yeah. Yeah. All of that is gone, you know? So um, it's, it's, and then not just that, we don't have them for the six hours a day that we used to. I know. Well, hopefully we don't. I've, I've heard some horror stories about some days that are being replicated online and these kids are just trapped on endless video conferencing calls. And I'm like, yes. Zoom fatigue is real. I experience yeah, it, it as an adult. And mm-hmm. if we don't give kids break from the screens, I think we're really asking for kids to disengage because oh, goodness, it's just yes. exhausting. It's mm-hmm. exhausting. I know mm-hmm. it's tough. And it doesn't, I mean, quite frankly, and you, you know, like I do, that there are benefits to online learning, but they're really wrapped up in agency and autonomy and flexibility. And if you track kids on a video conferencing call, they lose all of those benefits. All of that, all of that. And for our awesome teachers out there who are designing um, learning opportunities, you know, where students have agency and, you know, opportunities for collaborative work and Mm -hmm. even still building those social skills and all of those pieces, that takes a lot of time to plan the yep. first time over. Oh yeah. Exactly. You know, you luckily know, you'll you know, when you design stuff early on in your career, you're like, "Oh, I can reuse this later. Mm-hmm. Like this is going to pay mm-hmm. dividends." But everything's so new right now and they're whipping up all of these um mm-hmm. new experiences and less types of lessons. I I will say I am so grateful for 
the connectivity of teachers online and the degree of sharing that is happening right yes. now Yes, for those teachers who are not plugged into social media. And I know it's not for everybody. And I love your comment on our planning, <laughs> our planning doc. I asked Ivy where she wanted me to connect or let people connect with her. And she was like, I'm on Twitter. That's it. That's all I can handle. And, and I kind of agree. Like I have Instagram and people find me there, but I'm pretty boring follow. And then I have some stuff on Facebook, but I'm hardly ever on Facebook. Uh It's it's a lot to manage, but I'm like teachers. And if I was teaching a group of teachers who wanted to teach, would be teachers going into the profession, I would be like, find your online space, Uh build your virtual PLN. Like it, it will save you time. It will inspire you. You can grab ideas. Like oh my gosh, I can't imagine navigating this moment pre-social media in terms of, you know, teachers not feeling supported or idea sharing, you know, because they're not meeting physically anymore. And that's funny because I haven't even had that thought until now. Um, Really? No, yes. And it's kind of scary. It's alarming, actually, because (laughs) there's, again, yes, I'm only a Twitter person. And and please don't go on there and see how often I tweet. (laughs) (laughs) Just take whatever gems you find. But I can, but every time I go on there, whenever I, you know, I, I do get on there, you can find a teacher group. You can find yep. a hashtag, you know, an ed chat and tons of different gems on there. Or sometimes I just look at the notifications, you know, yeah. and, and Twitter is set so that it'll send you a notification. You might want to read this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's good. I do want to read that. <laughs> I will do that, you know? And so just little things like that, you just kind of get that instant information and opportunities to to connect. I I joke around with uh, a couple of my my Twitter friends. Um, I see them, we've met at conferences. Mm -hmm. And this is after we've been like connected through Twitter for some time. And one of them is, is Jackie Smith. And the first time when we saw each other, we're like, how do we know each other? And we spent, (laughs) we did, we spent like the first couple of days trying to figure out how we knew each other. Oh my gosh. And we had never met in person. It was actually in Twitter. And I don't know which one of us figured it out first. And we're like, (laughs) oh my God, we're Twitter friends. (laughs) Well, and I remember, and this was a good decade ago when I started my Twitter account, somebody was like, oh, you should be on Twitter. And my knee-jerk reaction was like, um, I'm not going to actually like make friends on Twitter. Like, (laughs) give me a break. That's never going to happen. And then like you, I would show up at conferences and people would be like, Caitlin Tucker. And I was like, my name's Caitlin, but hey, (laughs) and then we would totally connect. We'd grab coffee or we'd grab a glass of wine and we'd totally chat. And oh my gosh, I have so many people on Twitter who have had the pleasure of meeting in person. Uh And Uh then just like the stuff that they're willing to share. It was so sweet. I was going to be working with this elementary group and I wanted some elementary choice boards that people love that I could just point to as examples so they could Uh see like, hey, what would a kinder choice board look like? What would a, you know, third grade science choice board look like? And I just did a call out on Twitter. It was like the evening before. And I said, hey, does any elementary, particularly lower, have choice boards you love that you would be willing to share so I could use them as examples? Literally, that tweet thread has like, well over 70 different comments. Oh so my many, goodness. So many choice boards. And I've had people be like, thanks for starting this, Catlin. Like this is a, this is the mother load of choice boards. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, people are so 
incredibly generous right now. They it's really, so great. really have been. And, and I want to say as well, supportive, yes. you know, um, sometimes just knowing that someone is going through the same thing that you're going through, you know, the, making those connections. I mean, teachers need love too. Yep. <laughs> you know, we have, you know, social and emotional needs as well, especially while we're all on this journey together and um, just a lot of positivity out there enough to balance the negativity. I want to say, um, as long as you don't fall down the rabbit hole, which is my tendency. I'm probably the only one out there. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> who can fall down the rabbit hole, you know, of social media. And, and I do say that in jest, but um, there's a lot of opportunities to connect with others, to learn from others. And um, I say just choose one. Just yeah, choose, choose one, one. exactly. Yes. One that you like, a space you mm -hmm. don't mind hanging out in. Mm -hmm. So you've been a teacher. You've been a teacher. Is it like a teacher on special assignment with the curriculum yes. and instruction, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. So you've yeah, basically we have, been coaching. Right. So at our district, we have uh, teachers on special assignment that can either be site-based, where they totally work within the site mm -hmm. and do additional assignments, or you have some that are based at the district office that will serve all the sites that they're assigned to. And and now you are an administrator. And I just mm -hmm. have to ask, because the job of an administrator, it's like everything I don't love about teaching rolled into <laughs> one. <laughs> rolled into one. Um, uh -huh. So I'm dying to hear, like, what inspired that move for you? You know... Again, this is another story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but when I was working at LA Unified, um, both I married my husband very young, right out of college. Literally, again, a couple of months after I graduated, it was a eventful year, shall I say? <laughs> and um, he went right back to grad school for his MBA, and um, I was at home, and he was like well, why don't you just come to school? And I was like, oh, I guess. <laughs> and, so, and that is literally what prompted me to go back and get my administrative credential. Oh, wow. Um, and that was, yeah, and that was at the time where, you know, masters weren't tied into your credential program. And so I got my credential separate from my master's and administrative credential Um but I was not ready to go into administration at that time. Um, the reason that propelled me to get that credential instead of just, you know, maybe going into another area or just getting a, another master's or, or getting a master's flat out is that the school that I was at taught me a lot. It was a great experience. Um, but even more so, there I was left with a lot of questions mm -hmm. um, throughout that experience. And I had to know that there was something else out there. There was there were other opportunities and experiences um, and types of schools and types of systems that I was unaware of. And I needed to know that there was something additional. Mm -hmm. um, I needed to understand another level of the school dynamic and so I said, well, let me learn about administration. And so that's why I ended up going that route. Um, and I held on to that credential, <laughs> I want to say, for, wow, almost 20 years before I decided to become an administrator. And, um, and I am a woman of faith. And so I honestly prayed about it, Catelyn. I'll be real. Yeah. And, and I, I said, um, you know, Lord, this is, 
uh, not something that I want to do right now, but I want to be of service mm -hmm. and I know that I'd be good at it. And I had been approached, you know, a few times, hey, why aren't you applying? Why aren't you doing <laughs> right. this? And I'm like, I'm fine. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. And so um, I said, well, after I prayed about it, and I said, well, if this is where um, I need to go, then I'll be put in that place. And sure enough, I, I was. And uh, I've found so many opportunities to serve. I've learned so much more about uh, just the the whole, I'll say, business of education. Right. And when I say that, I, I don't necessarily mean just the financial piece, even though I have learned a lot in this role. Just it, it's helping me have another perspective of education. It's giving me one more side of the prism of mm -hmm. education, this multifaceted, you know, prism yeah. of, of education. And it has made me a better educator. Understanding because, that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so each, each season that I've, I've gone through, you know, in this journey of education has made me a better educator. And, and that's what administration has done for me. It's, it's, it's let me see another side that, you don't always get to see and that you can't understand some things unless you have that additional information. Right. Um, it's allowed me to connect with my colleagues who are, you know, on the front lines in the classroom on a different level. It's just given me much broader understanding of the field of education and how to better support teachers and, and honestly how to run school systems. And I, I am thankful that I've had this opportunity to, to be an administrator in a K-12 school district. Yeah, I think as a teacher, it's so, there's often this like opaque, it's like an opacity. You know, we don't, we see what we see in our classrooms and we mm -hmm. want to make certain changes, but you're right. The schools, the districts, it's such a complex system. And I think sometimes the best leaders are the ones who can really articulate the why behind the way things are done so that teachers and stakeholders can really understand the decisions being made because there is this disconnect sometimes between leadership and administrators and their understanding of that side of the prism. And then us as the teachers in the classroom and, you know, when we want things to change and not understanding why that doesn't happen or why it doesn't happen fast enough or right. what, what barriers are really in place, making it hard right. for leaders to make certain mm -hmm. kinds of changes. You, you know, you, you said it, you really <laughs> said it, you, you said all of that. And um, I know that, you know, some of my teaching colleagues across the, you know, the nation, across the world have had um, really negative experiences with administrators. But um, I, I do want to say um, that people are people, you know, and, and we we all make mistakes. I think it's how you handle those mistakes mm -hmm. and use them as learning opportunities, no matter what role you're in. Exactly. Whether you're the superintendent, whether you're a director, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a coach, whether you're an administrator, whatever role you're in, um, I think that we have to be honest with ourselves and honest with each other. And that's a people issue. Right. That's not, you know, that, that's not necessarily an, an administrator issue. Um, I think also we have to work to understand each other's stories. Um, we That's also a people issue as well, yeah. you know. And um, sometimes, and I'm not perfect. I make plenty of mistakes. Oh, I'm right there with <laughs> you. <laughs> but but what I try to do is be an administrator who is listening to the needs of 
all of my stakeholders. Um, and then also sharing with families, you know, with teachers, with students, that I'm here for all of them. And I'm not sure if all of us articulate that, mm -hmm. that we are here for multiple stakeholders. Um, we are here to set the stage for teaching and learning so that teaching and learning can take place. Um, and, and there are many different parties that that play a part of mm -hmm. this, you know, this theater, this theater production. And um, and that's what administrators do. Yeah. You know, we we are directing, you know, the, the behind the scenes. And uh, if we can do that, if we can clear the way so that teachers can teach and teach well and that they're taken care of, that students are here and as healthy as as we can be to, to make sure that that happens, you know, that families feel like they're being listened to, that they're being cared for, and that um, their needs can be met in some sort of way, then I think we're doing a good job as an administrator if we are trying our best to make sure that all of those um, places are, are set at the table. Yeah, that's a big, big job for sure. And then you got your doctorate at Pepperdine University in the field of... Um, was it education policy? Uh-huh. Education policy and, and leadership. So, yeah. Policy and leadership. You sound like a servant leader to me. <laughs> that, am I wrong? <laughs> no, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. You're not wrong in that. And, and that is actually a part of a personal journey for me as well. Um, and, and like I said, that ties to my faith mm -hmm. in God and believing that all of us have a road to travel, that we are put in in places and in, in each other's lives, not always to meet our own meet needs, mm -hmm. but sometimes to help meet the needs of others. Sometimes we are in places just to be a cog in the will. And that's an important role. You know, and um, that is one of the very first things that I learned as being a uh, school site administrator, um, that sometimes it's all about you just being in that spot to be used yeah. um, and that you don't know and that you may not know uh, what role you play in others' lives, but be available and, and be open to being a part Yes. Oh my gosh. I love what, I love how you just articulated that. And I have to use this moment to tell the folks listening, I went into my, or I started my doctoral journey at Pepperdine University very much because of a conversation with Ivy <laughs> that I'm sure Ivy doesn't probably even remember that well, but I was in her district and I was working with teachers around blended learning. And I think it was on lunch and we were tucked away in some room and Ivy was telling me all about the a million things that she does. And then she, <laughs> she shared, you know, she's got kids. We, you have three daughters, right? I have two daughters and one son. Two daughters mm -hmm. and one son. So three kids. And she's got this full-time job. She's working on her doctor at Pepperdine University. And I thought, you know, it had been on my list of things that I hope to accomplish in my lifetime. But I just felt very much as a mom with, at that point, I think I had an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old. <laughs> and I thought, maybe I've missed my window. But after our conversation, I, I said, man, if this woman can do this and 
and love it. Like you clearly just enjoyed the process. I said, I feel like I can do this. And I want to say I applied within two months of that conversation. Did you really? I did. It was such an, it was such an important moment for me. And you, like I said, you probably were just like, oh, we we're chatting at lunch. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's actually in that program. Cause I wasn't expecting quite so much leadership focus in that mm-hmm, program, but mm-hmm. I'm so grateful that there was. And I was so drawn towards servant leadership. And I remember, yeah. One of the books that I got to choose was the the Simon Sinek Leaders Eat Last. Yes. And I just yes. loved the whole idea behind that approach to leadership. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and, and I think, again, totally my opinion. You know what opinions are like. <laughs> but you have to understand who you are as an individual and then decide how your... Um, your personality, your values, um, your beliefs are going to um, contribute to your leadership legacy. That really resonated with me because it had me thinking, you know, um, who am I going to be? And that's been an ongoing question just throughout my life, reevaluating mm-hmm. who am I and, and what, um, it, not necessarily what difference do I want to make in this world, but how can I play a role in others' lives? Mm-hmm. So I know one of the questions I asked you before our chat was to start thinking about some of the imbalances in education from your perspective. And one of the things you noted was just kind of society's view of and expectations for teachers creating mm-hmm. imbalance. And I'd love for you to speak to that a little. You know what? I, I will. And um, I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to, I will. (laughs) (laughs) I think, and I'm I'm looking at what, what I jotted down. um, I put on here that, you know, when people say work-life balance, uh, for me anyway, there is this, this visual that, that pops up, you know, you see the scales and, and it's all about, you know, making sure that you can balance those scales and, 50% 50% over here and 50% over here, you know, this nice little split. Um, and it's a complete lie. <laughs> it's a complete lie. And so you run around again. I'll say me when I say, I'm sorry. so you, I run around, you know, uh, thinking that, oh man, I'm not doing this right. Something is wrong, you know, and I'm feeling guilty because I'm not getting this balance correct. Um, and then the scales aren't yes, perfectly aligned. The scales are not aligned, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm giving myself, you know, uh, these these mental lashings, you know. Yeah. And um, the reality is that when you have truly prioritized your values and what is most important to you. Um, most doesn't mean equal, meaning that what is most important to you is going to take more, you know, of the percentage of your time. It's mm-hmm. going to really make those skills off balance. And that's okay. And I don't think that we tell ourselves that that's okay. okay. Yeah. You know, and, um, society, and this is also part of what some of my research was was on, society, American society has this fickle relationship with, um, I'll say, public education, mm-hmm. and then also our view of teachers, um, even though it is one of, by, by definition, 
and by all of the qualifiers that it, it takes, you know, and the demands that it takes to become a teacher, including education, including a, a period of apprenticeship, it is a highly professional job that is um, akin in its, you know, requirements to other jobs that we see or careers that we see in America that are, you know, high paying and amazing. We just have mm-hmm. these connotations with them like doctors, you know, again, right. there is a, a certain level of education that comes with it, as well as a period of apprenticeship. Um, when we look at even plumbers, there is a certain you know level of education and a period of apprenticeship. There's so many things that qualify under the parameters of career, yet we don't necessarily see teaching as a career. Um, and very much so not a reputable career. Which is um, crazy. Because these are absolutely the insane. <laughs> these are the people we trust with our children yes. who we care more about than anything in this world. Mm-hmm. Like, how are we not treating these people like they're up on a pedestal, you know, just putting them on these pedestals of like, thank you. Thank you for everything you do. It's, it's, it's really crazy when you think about it. And and even if we just take away, how are we not treating teachers better? That, But why aren't we even thinking that they have value mm-hmm. and everything that it takes to even become a teacher? Why is it in some people's mind as a last resort profession? Oh, well, can't find a job. Guess I'll go teach. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe I'll just do one of the hardest jobs Ever. around. <laughs> that affect lives and souls, you know, for the rest of, you know, like we don't think that. And so when we look at other societies and we have these random questions like, oh, why is, I'll just say Switzerland, why are they amazing? It's because it's literally in the fabric (laughs) of their history, the importance of education, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And, um, And not just that, just the value that society holds on education. Public education is new to America. When we look at the amount of years that we have actually had public education stemming from common schools, you know, these are Mm -hmm. things that had to be uh, debated and and mandated federally, you know, for years before it was actually (laughs) instituted. I mean, let's be real, Catlin, we can't even agree that all students in every single state in America should be learning the same thing. You know? <laughs> oh no, man! The Common Core was seriously divisive. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness! And that—it's uh, amazing when you think about it. Why yeah. wouldn't everyone say yes? Every child who is nine year old, nine years old, should be learning X, Y, and Z. Every child who is 16 years old should be learning X, Y, and Z. When you put it that simplistic, when it's that simplistic, when you you view it that way, how is that a bad thing? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) um, Nevertheless, all of those pieces truly tie into why we view education in the way that we do and also why we have certain feelings about teachers, Um, And then when you just really want to start looking at, you know, equity, when we uh, there's a lot of research out there that shows that we have this view of teachers being um, having less value Mm -hmm. is because there is an overwhelming amount of teachers that are female. 
Mm-hmm. So that's a whole other conversation mm-hmm. if people really want to dive into the research. When we look at the number of K-12 teachers, how it is overwhelmingly female. female. Yep. And so we, we you know, there's a lot of, uh, again, research on is this part of why we view education in the way that we do. Um, mm-hmm. If any of you guys out there have read Leading While Female and, and some of the research that the authors have done, um, on why when we look at leadership in school districts, why it is overwhelmingly male. Mm -hmm. Um, And we look at that balance again Mm -hmm. uh, of how many actual teachers are female. So why are the percentages, why is the ratio so far off? Mm-hmm. You know, that the small amount of males that are in K-12 education have um been have risen if that's the mm-hmm. verb you want to use into leadership roles um when it's over an overwhelmingly amount an overwhelming imbalance of how many females there are in in k-12 education so it's it's something for us to think about yeah you know? well and i think in this moment what teachers need to hear because every everybody is stressed, whether it is financial insecurity, whether it's food insecurity, whether it's fear of the, the virus or whatever is going on for people. I feel like everybody's tense. Everybody's like lashing out mm-hmm. and teachers are taking a lot of a brunt of that. And what they need to hear right now is that they're appreciated, their work matters mm-hmm. and that students need them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just tough that there seems to be this kind of tension right now. And, and a lot of it, I don't know, it feels directed towards teachers. Like they're not doing enough or, and they're not doing mm-hmm. it right. And that has to be so defeating in this moment when they're trying to learn so many new skills and approach learning and teaching in such different ways. I've got to be honest, Catlin, it hurts too. Yeah. You know, yeah. it hurts too. We look at when the pandemic first hit, if we, if you, well, let's take it back to social media. <laughs> if you go back to social media and look at people's posts and tweets who now had their students, you know, their children at home, and they were giving all this praise to teachers. I don't know how teachers do it. Let's play mm-hmm. pay them a million dollars. This is crazy. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. You know, and it was a, a real heartwarming um uh, it was received very heartwarmingly from all the mm-hmm. educators because it was kind of like, ah, now you know what we're doing right? every day, you know? Mm-hmm. And let's fast forward that, you know, five, six months later, and it's teachers are selfish. How get back dare you guys get yep. back in the classroom? You're essential. And it was just like someone had flipped the switch and yeah. that was heartbreaking. It was. And to go from heartwarming to heartbreaking, um, again, I think it's a a reflection of societal values. And it it really begs us to ask the question, like, who are we? You know, what do we really believe about teachers and education? Yeah. And what do we really value? Yes. What Mm -hmm. do we value as a society? That's the bigger question. What do we value? Oh, that is a huge question and not one we're going to answer here today, but one that I sure hope people are thinking about. And I always like to close these conversations by giving my guests kind of the last word to, you know, share from their experience, life, work experience. Are there 
any lessons you've learned about balance or any tips or advice that you can give folks who, you know, are really struggling with that balance in their own lives? I'll I'll take it back to what I was saying before about this misnomer of the 50-50. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this kind of ties towards gender as well. Um, for a lot of ladies out there who are in the field of education and they're also mothers and their wives, um, sisters, uh, daughters, caretakers, and they're doing a lot of things. Um, sometimes there is this overwhelming amount of stress that we place on ourselves believing that we can do everything. Well, do it all. Yeah, we can do it all. <laughs> We're good, you know? Right. Um, my mother, <laughs> she's always the one who slows me down. And, and not in a bad way, but in a good right. way. Like, she pumps my brakes because I obviously can't pump my brakes enough <laughs> for myself. <laughs> and she's like, Ivy, you only have 100%. And I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, you think that you can give 100% to everything and you can't. She's like, you only got 100%, you know? <laughs> so she's she, like- She's right. She's right. And and that really changed my thinking because I was really beating myself up that I couldn't give 100% to my kids and 100% to my husband and 100% to my career and then at school, 100% to school. And she's like, add all those hundreds up. That's like 500% <laughs> or 400. And she's like, you've only got 100. So you need to decide how you're going to split this pie. And, and, and I say that not just for the ladies who might be listening, but also for the men. We've only got 100%. So we have to decide what our priorities are and what we value and know that once we make those decisions, it's okay. The hard part is having the courage to communicate those decisions with others and standing on them even when it's hard or it puts you at risk you know, of missing some opportunities because sometimes taking a stand does definitely put you at risk for missing an opportunity. However, mm-hmm. if you are missing an opportunity because of doing something else that you truly value, then it won't matter. Oh it my gosh, matter. I love that. It won't that's matter. Such good advice. Because that's yes. what you've decided is a priority. And so I challenge everyone to go out there and, um, and really think about what their priorities are. You know, and how they're going to divide up their 100 percent. And it doesn't mean that it may not change. You know, during that doctoral program, that was getting a good 56 percent. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. But that was just a season as well. That yeah. was just oh. a season. I have my children. I don't know if they'll ever pursue, a, a, as my daughter says, a doctor's degree. She, she, when I finish, she goes, I never want to get a doctor's degree. <laughs> because my pie was not, I did, they didn't have a biggest slice as they used to have in the 100% pie I was working with either. Yes, yes. So oh, that's I, such good advice. I'd leave listeners with that. Just um, you make those choices and know that you can choose. A lot of us feel that we can't choose, but we can. We can. I had someone tell me once before, um, I, what, did she, what did they say? Uh, I don't have the liberty to make that choice. And I said, oh, but you do. Mm-hmm. You do. You make that choice and stand on it. Yeah. Stand on it. 
Well, thank you so much for joining me. This was so fun. I'm so glad we got to chat. I am too. I am. This was fun. There are several aspects of this conversation that resonated with me. And the first is just this acknowledgement about the important role that teachers play in their students' lives and my desire to see society more generally just appreciate and value this incredible work that people do. And I get to coach teachers every single week, and I am constantly amazed by their resilience, the positive attitude they bring to this incredibly hard work, especially in this moment that is so fluid and so unfamiliar and really challenging so many teachers to experiment and step outside of their comfort zone. So I want the teachers listening to this podcast to know how much I value the incredible work that you're doing always, but in this moment specifically, which I know is just really tough. Another aspect of the conversation that I think will stay with me is just this idea of the pie, right? That we have 100%, no more, no less. And so where is that 100% going to go? How are we going to divvy up that pie? And for years, I think I was working under the delusion that I might have somewhere close to 1,000%. I could give 100% to all these different aspects of my life. And I always felt guilty when I fell short. And that was such a great reminder that you only have so many hours in the day. You only have so much energy. And how can we be really thoughtful and intentional about how we split up this pie? Because we make the choices about what we dedicate our time and energy to. And that was a great reminder for me. So the teacher tip from today is really just a product of a conversation I had with a teacher who, when we initially started working together, was really frustrated by teaching online and not feeling connected to her students. And one of the adjustments she made was to give students time in their video conferencing sessions to do some individual work and practice or work in a breakout room with peers. And she started intentionally pulling one student at a time into a breakout room just to do an informal check-in. And she said that those conversations with kids, which were sometimes as short as two or three minutes, were the most powerful way that she's been able to connect with her kids online. And so what she was sharing was, I realized that I can talk at kids all day long, but if I don't make time to connect with them, I'm not building those relationships. And so the tip I think that comes out of that conversation is to remember to make that time and space to carve it out to connect with individual learners in this moment because that is going to feed your teacher soul and make you feel like you really are connecting with these people even though you're not sharing a physical space with them. If you have a tip you'd like to share with educators that you think will help in this moment, you can find me on Twitter at Catlin underscore Tucker and use the hashtag balance. Thank you to StudySync for sponsoring this podcast. 
StudySync is committed to helping teachers find balance in their lives by providing them with a robust multimedia ELA platform that simplifies lesson planning, automatically differentiates tasks for learners at different skill levels and language proficiencies, and blends online and offline engagement to help students develop as thinkers, readers, writers, and speakers. As teachers navigate an online learning landscape during school closures, StudySync is hard at work creating resources designed to ease this transition. You can check out their remote learning resources, including their ready-to-use five-day mini-units, blog posts, and webinars, both live and on-demand at studysync.com.